0: Okay, Wesley Swift fans are going to hate me after tonight. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is of Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 28th, 2016. Tonight I'm going to offer a critique of Wesley Swift. This isn't a critique of any particular paper as I have been doing with Bertrand Compare. This is a general critique of Wesley Swift, which includes an explanation of why we must preserve his work, even though we are critical of it. So, to explain that, first we must explain our motives and methods at Christagenia. I want to give people, and especially my critics, the opportunity to understand some of the logic behind my website, and how it evolved. So I have to sort of start from the beginning. Everything we do is carefully considered, whether we succeed or we fail. I remember telling Clifton Heiser in a phone conversation, perhaps as early as 2005 or 2006, that one day I would put all of his material on a website of his own. At that time, I wanted to call it john844.org. That was my first name. Of course, I was still in prison. There is currently a john844.org website, which I created, but I did not use it for the purposes I had originally intended. And in its current state, it is still not complete. It's okay, but it's not complete. Then a short time later, I thought of what I thought was a better term. And so far as I remember, I kept it to myself. When I was released from prison in December of 2008, I had a concept for a website for my own writing that I was going to call either Christagenia or Christagenos. I eventually settled on the former because I thought it resembled its meaning in English much better but I still like Christagenos a little more and I continue to retain ownership of both domain names so that certain charlatans can't steal one of them I really thought that Christagenia would be just a small blog and a place for my essays and translations and that I would keep my promise to Clifton I never had any idea that it would grow into a collection of websites with over 12,000 pages, not counting the forum. I never imagined there would even be a forum. By the end of April of 2009, I accomplished those things which I originally set out to do. But things were moving very quickly. I had begun doing twice-weekly podcast with Eli James, and quickly expanded those to four times a week, one alone and one with Sword Brethren, as well as a European fellowship every other week. So I had a lot of new things that I wanted to share each week that I never imagined having. I had to rebuild my first websites from old-fashioned static sites into dynamic content management systems to make it easier to post new material. That was done by September of 2009. And in the meantime, I had made a completely new site for Eli James. And this is the important part. Even if I did not like a lot of his material such as things like the Why 2012 article, which he still has posted. In fact, at that time we were asking, why not 2012? And now, in 2016, we should certainly be able to answer that. At that time, I had the understanding that Christians, real Christians, should tolerate one another, even if they don't necessarily agree with one another. I had, I had already decided that the grounds for Christian fellowship were the recognition of Jesus Christ as God, the acceptance that only people of our white race were within the covenants of God, the rejection of all Jews as evil, and the exclusion of Jews and of all other races for, from, I'm sorry, from fellowship and communion. If we can agree on those few things, then we can disagree on practically anything else, and we should still be able to get along with one another. So, on those grounds, I tolerated Eli James, and worked with him, in spite of whatever we had disagreed on at that time, even though with some of those things, Eli James, even at that time, was quite reluctant. In July of 2009, I started a forum, and my forum management philosophy has been based on those same principles, even though many former forum members are butthurt Because I or others would not accept some of their silly ideas. By then, I was beginning to realize, having been isolated for so long, that cushion identity also attracted every form of disaffected quack and all sorts of people with underlying agendas, for various reasons which are way beyond the scope of this current discussion. My interest in more recent history, and especially the plight of Germany, and how it has suffered over the past few centuries by the treachery of Jewry, began to surface in weekly podcasts with Sword Brethren, and I created the Mein Kampf Project, in September of 2009, because the material had to have a home separate from my Bible and ancient history studies. Many supposed identity Christians, especially in England, the Anglophiles, began to despise me for that website. Even Eli James admitted behind my back that he hated my Hitler site, as he called it. And I have plenty of evidence of that. Then, in 2010, I got around to considering a collection of Bertrand Compare's work, which Clifton had put together, and we decided that it really needed a separate home from Clifton's own work. So at that time, I established the Compare Archive, and the owner, the current owner, the owner at that time, the young man who created IsraelElect.com, who had digitized tapes of compare sermons which Clifton provided him encouraged me to include them in the archive. One of our listeners, a very kind woman in Ohio, posted the documents for us. I just created the technology. Early that same year, or perhaps a little later in 2009, I obtained a CD containing all of the writings of Wesley Swift, which so far as I know had been digitized by Ella Rose Mast. Of course, the CD also contained many of her writings as well, which mostly consisted of notes which she took from Swift. The CD came to me through a mutual friend who had spent much time with Lorraine Swift in the last year of her life. And I felt a responsibility to preserve it and make it publicly available on another archive website. Having Lorraine Swift as a friend and correspondent for five years, I know she would have wanted that. And I felt that it was my obligation simply because I had the ability to do it. So a good friend, a woman in California, volunteered to post the documents, and again, I did the technical work. And the Wesley Swift Archive at Christagenia was created the same year as the Cambrai Archive, in 2010. Also that year, I made another new website for Eli James, based on the same content management software I was using at Christagenia. Since then, someone else has updated that to his own current site. We split in early 2011. Because Eli began openly teaching things which violated those grounds for Christian fellowship, which had been my philosophy from the beginning. When Eli and I split, in spite of all the drama he caused... I could have easily pressed the button and deleted his entire website in a single minute. Instead, I quietly handed control of his site over to a mutual friend. I am not a spiteful man, regardless of how many ridiculous slanders are made against me. With the addition of a half-dozen other sites at Christagenia, the Saxon Messenger and the Dixie site and sites like that, of which I will spare us an explanation here. In 2012, the control of IsraelElect.com fell into my hands, and I possess it to this very day. At IsraelElect.com, one may find a lot of the work of Swift, Compre, emma Emheiser, and even myself. But most of that I now redirect to Christagenia because the user interface is far superior to the old technology. However, at IsraelElect.com, there is also much of the work of Sheldon Emery, Jack Moore, Arnold Kennedy, W.G. Finlay, Roger Hathaway, and other identity writers. All of these men were early Christian identity teachers of one sort or another. But with all of these men, I have some degree or another of disagreement. I believe that I can point out at least some faults with all of their teachings, whether it be something serious, such as the pall-bashing of W.G. Finlay, or some error that is found much more commonly, such as the lack of a clear understanding of Satan, found in some of the work of Sheldon Amory, or, more seriously, the Dominion Theology, which was espoused by most early identity writers. Dominion Theology is just plain wrong. To put things in perspective, this month all of the Christogania, all of the Christogania websites combined are getting on average nearly 2,000 visitors a day. The Swift and Comparé sites would be immaterial to me if I counted visits because they combined only get about 10% of that traffic or less and the forum accounts for another 15%. Israel Elect is getting about 500 visitors a day. So the bottom line is this, I host Christian identity websites, which get about 650 visits each day, but which also have a lot of material that I myself do not entirely agree with. In fact, a small percentage of that material I actually despise. I hate it, but I still host it. Right now, I can press a proverbial button and make everything that I have posted but don't agree with disappear in just a few minutes. Perhaps someone else may be able to recover some of it and post it elsewhere, and perhaps not. But to me, that would be, first it would be pretty arrogant, but to me, that would be an abrogation of responsibility. So, I could never voluntarily do such a thing. I sincerely feel that these things have come into my possession for good reason. And that since I have the ability to do what I've done and to maintain them, there must be a purpose which is greater than my own personal feelings or my own ego. I say all of this tonight because over the past few years there are people both friendly and unfriendly, with both good intentions and evil contentions, who ask me why I host a Swiss site or a compare archive if I do not agree with everything that they taught. There are several reasons why I do this. Firstly, I have been blessed with the friendships, the connections, the material, and the ability. Secondly, I have learned from these men, even if I don't like everything that they teach at this time in my life, At one time, I learned from these men, and read it all, and appreciated it all. And even though now I can identify mistakes that they have made, their work is worth preserving for what we have all learned from them. Thirdly, if I did not use the ability I have been blessed with to share what I have learned, and not merely what I think I know, then I am fruitless because I would only be exalting myself and diminishing the men I have that I have learned from. True Christians would want to exalt their brethren and not themselves. True Christians should not tear their brethren down simply because they made a mistake or did not properly understand something. So I endeavor to practice my Christian beliefs, rather than simply give them lip service. And my fourth reason is this, that we as identity Christians should seek to maintain our history, the record of how we got to where we are, how we became awakened to the wonderful truths of our history and the revelations of Scripture. So to me, The Swift and the Compare archives, among some of the other things at Christagenia and some of the other things I host elsewhere, are an important part of that record and are also the fulfillment of my own obligations to help edify my brethren and to honor my predecessors, the men that I learned from when I first started down this path even where I no longer agree with them. The maintenance of the IsraelElect.com website also falls under that obligation. Yahweh did not put it into my hands in order to destroy it. So not only will I continue to maintain these works, but Yahweh willing, I also have plans to improve all of them. And this is where I differ from many of my critics, I do not fear scrutiny, and I am willing to talk about any of my work with anyone else who desires an honest discussion. I am confident that the people that have met me in person know all of that, except the one clown that I used to work with who has an agenda that has to be exposed. And many fools still give him credibility which he does not deserve. But I do not hear scrutiny, and neither will I fail to scrutinize others. As Paul of Tarsus said in his first epistle to the Thessalonians, as the King James Version has it, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Perhaps the meaning is clearer in the Christogelian New Testament, and I will read the prior verse as well. Do not despise the expounding of Scripture. But scrutinize all things, hold fast that which is right. This is how we must treat the work of all of our teachers, not to mention our own work as well. So we must seek to preserve the records of where we came from and how we got to where we are. But we must also correct the errors of our teachers and build upon what they have left us. That is how I look at Swift, Compare, and those others whose works I also endeavor to preserve. And if we have to preserve some things which are bad, along with what is good, we can only pray that our own work will help others make the same determinations which we ourselves have made. So my position is one of humility. Can I go through all of Wesley Swift's work and delete everything that I think might be wrong? Doing so, I myself might make a mistake and delete something that is actually correct. But even if I made no mistakes, I would be destroying that record of our history which I seek to preserve. So what do we do instead? What we do is preserve the original and hope to improve on it in our own work. Do not despise expounding of scripture, but scrutinize all things. Hold fast that which is right. In the meantime, we have to assign trust, a degree of trust to our brethren, to hope that they too can discern these things, because none of us are perfect. So that is a brief and partial history of the development of Christogenia, most of which is extraneous to my own work. And with this, I am going to offer a general criticism of the work of Wesley Swift, because while Swift blazed the trail and left us a good many things, he also made many mistakes, and some of this is going to be quite harsh. First, let me say this. To the best of my knowledge, neither Wesley Swift nor Bertrand Compare are cited in any of the essays, articles, or Bible studies which I myself have produced, except for where I have criticized them on occasion, or, in Compare's case, have offered critical presentations of some of his papers. This is not because I despise these men. I've worked closely with Clifton Emeheiser for many years, and I do not remember more than perhaps a couple of occasions where I have cited him. Rather, this is because I have a different approach to my studies than most other identity writers. Go to the website of the rabbi in Chicago and read his identity articles and all you get is quotes from other identity writers. I don't do any of that. Early on, I decided to lay aside the work of all others and only read, cite, and study original sources in my own work. So I rarely even cite any Bible commentaries, I think I have maybe two or three times, or recently written histories. And because I want to prove the truth of my Christian identity independently, I generally did not quote from other identity writers. While I proofread for Clifton, I only read any of the work of friends such as Mark Downey or Sven Longshanks when I might want to publish an article in the Saxon Messenger, because honestly, that's all I have time to read. But this, too, is a digression. I stay away from the work of other Christian identity writers for my own academic purposes. That doesn't mean that I despise them. I just don't peruse them. As Christians... We do not need teachers in the sense that teachers should be our masters and that we should put them on pedestals. It is in that sense that Christ used the Hebrew term of respect for their teachers and he said, Be not called rabbi, for one is your master, Christ, and you are all brethren. So in like manner, We do not put any man on a pedestal, since no man is above criticism. Those who criticize me vocally for my critiques of Swift and Compare, they are doing that very thing. They're taking Wesley Swift, putting him on a pedestal, and imagining that he cannot be criticized. Bullshit. He certainly can be criticized, and we all can be. The only man that can't be criticized is Jesus Christ. As teachers, we do not seek students or subordinates. Rather, we seek fellow workers. And we seek to help our brethren, rather than to rule over them. In that sense, Christ had said, Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. So we seek to serve one another, lift one another up. We don't seek to rule over one another. We lead by example, not by dictate. These are my methods and my motives, as candidly as I can express them. And if I have omitted anything of significance, I apologize for the oversight. But I have omitted nothing by design. So with that understanding, here I will offer a general critique of some of the work of Wesley Swift. I do this... Because not only do I receive frequent inquiries as to why I preserve Swift's work, but also as to whether or not I agree with certain things that Wesley Swift had taught. So while Wesley Swift taught many things that I have learned from, and many things that I can agree with, here I will only discuss those things which I cannot agree with. But first, I must make another admission. Before I was released in, from prison in December of 2008, I was only familiar with Wesley Swift through five years of correspondence with his wife, Lorraine, who first wrote to me after she received my address from another mutual friend sometime in late 1999 or early 2000 and through the three or four dozen booklets of his sermons, probably closer to four dozen, which I had obtained during those years. I do not have them all now. I have some of them, but I gave many of them away. I received those booklets either from Lorraine Swift or from others. Since creating the Wesley Swift Archive at Christogenia, I have only had time to read a small portion of what is posted there, and there are over 1,200 pages of material, much more than the three or four dozen of his popular booklets that I was able to read in the past. First let me say this, Wesley Swift, first in other words before starting on our critique, Wesley Swift did not really give many sermons. Neither was he, in my opinion, a proper lecturer. In my opinion, a lecturer should at least give his sources where information which is not expected to be generally known by his audience is being transmitted. But Wesley Swift very rarely gave his sources, so neither is he a true scholar. What Wesley Swift was, is a storyteller. And he did that very well. He was a storyteller, not necessarily because his stories were not true. Most of them were mostly true. But he was a storyteller because he would move on from one element to the next without taking the time to explain how he arrived at many of his conclusions Or where he got his information from. One example is his frequent assertion that Negroes were brought to this planet by Satan from some place in outer space. When Satan lost a great spaceship battle in space against the, excuse me, against the Archangel Michael, Here is an example of this aspect of Swift's storytelling, from a sermon called, From Horizons Beyond, which he had given on July 3rd, 1960. And Swift said, and I'm going to interject some comments, Daniel the prophet was told concerning your nation ahead of time, and that's an arguable claim, And he was told that Michael would come in with his fleet. Now, Swift conjectures the entire part about the fleet. I didn't read that in Daniel. Do you know when Michael the Prince fought for you the last time? I can give you proof that you were with the Father in Heavens before the world was framed. And we do not believe Swift proves his claims of pre-existence, which are actually refuted by scripture. And he goes on to say, because Michael the Prince has not fought for you before on earth. Now, Daniel 13, Daniel chapter 10 verse 13 says otherwise. So Swift is not doing very well here. And he goes on to say, then this must have been while you were in the spirit. Now, Paul says the fleshly comes first, and then the spiritual. Swift goes on to say, But when Lucifer took one-third of the planets and the peoples of the Milky Way and tried to make a tremendous army using the technology of God, which he had been using for years in the heavens. Then when Lucifer tried to take over the throne of God, the whole dimensions of the creations of the universe, then Michael the Prince of Heaven distributed his army and broke the power of Lucifer, and most of his broken spacecraft landed on Earth. Now here Swift is weaving an elaborate tale out of the simple and poetic allegory of the Revelation. The Revelation is true, but Swift's tale is not true, because he made it all up. How can we teach conjecture in place of Scripture? And he goes on to say, And this is where Lucifer has been ever since, right here. And that's sort of true. That part is sort of true, depending on how you look at Lucifer. And he says, this is what upset the ancient civilization in South America. Now, that's conjecture. And he goes on to say, this is what upset the nation of Africa, and turned it into darkness. For some of the warriors of Lucifer's fleet were now in earth. And that, too, is mere conjecture. And he says, this is what started voodooism and the degeneration of the Negroes. And that's also conjecture. And he says, it is what started the great battles of the Matavaras of history with the ancient people of India and China, and that is also conjecture and he says and in the panorama of those events it affected whole continents and they sank beneath the waters of the Atlantic and the Pacific and that is absolute conjecture the mighty battles in the sky are now a matter of history that's conjecture and the Madhavaras of India, and the battle of the gods in the sky, and the dragon god of Asia, now come to earth to try to stop his kingdom, meaning Yahweh's kingdom. And that is also conjecture. And he says, it is all there, and what has transpired in the ancient past is thus told. And of course, that too is conjecture. And Swift was also a syncretist. Not only did he weave tales which could not be proven, which were pure conjecture, he was also a syncretist, which is fully evident here, meaning that he borrowed ideas from many different sources found among the traditions of many different peoples and he gave them all credibility, attempting to interpret them so that they complement one another, and thereby he wove together tales from sources such as Chinese, Negro, and Hindu mythology, and he presented that woven cloth out of Diverse Threads, which is against the law of Yahweh, he presented that woven cloth as historical narrative. And it certainly is not historical narrative or biblical narrative. It's just an invention contrived by Wesley Swift or by somebody else, I don't know. Philo was the first syncretist. Philo Judahius attempted to mingle the pagan Greek myths, accepting them as true, with the Hebrew scriptures. And he failed miserably, caught up in all sorts of sophistry in order to make it work. While there may be truths represented in pagan myths, That doesn't mean that we take their myths and try to make truth out of them in comparison or in cohesion with Christian scriptures. It does not work because those myths are also littered with even more, many more lies than they have truths. Almost everything which Wesley Swift said in this paragraph that I've just read should not be repeated. Rather, it should all be taken with a grain of salt, and less. The word of Yahweh our God in our Bibles tells us not to respect the gods of the heathen. As it says in Exodus chapter 23, Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them, and quite break down their images. When we adopt the myths of the heathen, and attempt to incorporate them into our own worldview. How are we not accepting their gods? We can take note of what the heathen believe, and we can even understand why they believe what they do. But we cannot weave their narratives into our own worldview. That is stepping over the barrier into idolatry. Swift loved to quote the Vedic literature. That's where he got some of this story from. The Vedic literature, which many identity Christians, sadly, and especially many Christ-rejecting white nationalists, love to promote, is another example. There are claims that the Vedas are at least 3,000, and perhaps as many as 4,000 years old. For that, I say, bullshit. All of the supposed proof is only conjecture on, a certain, on the part of certain linguists with fanciful imaginations. The oldest written records of the Vedas are not even a thousand years old, and no one can confidently attest to the development of either language or the literature up until that time. So we have little knowledge of the true origins of the Vedas and even less knowledge about the circumstances or motivations behind their creation. What did they start out as? What were they elaborated into? How many layers of storytelling have been layered atop the stories in the Vedas? We don't know. We take our New Testament manuscripts, we have a whole history of different discoveries in ancient papyri and manuscripts, so we can tell what these New Testament manuscripts said in 200 A.D., in 300 A.D., in 400 A.D., in 500 A.D. We have an entire um, chain of reference so that we can understand our Greek New Testament and how it came into our hands. They pull these Vedas out of some butthole in Baghdad a thousand years ago and accept that they're four thousand years old. And at four thousand years ago, they may—they probably said exactly what they do today. My ass. We do not quote the Vedas as scripture. Not at all. All of the supposed proof is only conjecture on the part of certain linguists with fanciful imaginations. We have little knowledge of the true origins of them. They may certainly arouse our curiosity, but we cannot accept them as any historical or religious authority whatsoever. Yet Wesley Swift made this error with remarkable consistency. I, too, could have followed down this path. I also read at least many of the things which Swift had read, but I made a conscious decision to disregard them because either their provenance and antiquity was unknown, or it was known to be from an uninspired or uncorroborated source. And when I say uncorroborated in this context, I mean that there is no firm scriptural support and no reliable historical or archaeological support. We should accept things only by the mouth of two or three dependable witnesses. And I say that not only in reference to the Vedas, but also to a lot of Western, apocryphal, and pseudepigraphal literature, where I also include the biblical literature in that category. Here is another example, (coughs) excuse me, from a Bible study question and answer session, which Wesley Swift conducted. These are on record at Christogenia. On December ninth, 1964, and Swift said, along with this, speaking about Yahweh's kingdom in heaven, I guess he, he's conjecturing here. Along with this is all the comings and goings throughout the universe, as we see from the Book of Enoch. Now, the Book of Enoch There is no book of Enoch. There are a ton of books of Enoch. One Enoch is actually an amalgamation of at least four or five different books. And then there's two Enoch, or the secrets of Enoch. And then there's three Enoch. And and there's probably more Enochs than that. But there's no single book of Enoch. And, And no real scholar would say, the book of Enoch, he might say one Enoch or two Enoch, so that we could distinguish what he means. I might say in the Enoch literature, and then you'll have to guess which one I mean, but I often, or I always in my writings, give a citation so that you could find the exact book of Enoch that I'm talking about. But we'll continue, and we will try to read Swift's entire paragraph without running my mouth. Along with this is all the comings and goings throughout the universe, as we see from the book of Enoch and from the writings of Paul. Millions of people, probably multiple millions, even billions, and these are the offspring of God. Paul was told, these are your kinsmen relatives of yours in the celestial planes I'm choking on these words I'm sorry they may not have a physical body they may never have a physical body or they may have a physical body whose wavelength has been absorbed by higher acceleration into a celestial plane capable of residing on any planet although probably forbidden to enter this one Except under a specific command. Cough. Therefore, then the apostle Paul and Enoch both saw people coming and going, saw great ships, crafts, whole fleets coming and going from the areas where the administration of the kingdom is located. From planet to planet, from one area to another they move. Then there are great areas where there is spears of command. One particular area of the Pleiades, the largest area of the Pleiades is reserved, apparently, I'd say, as an administration center of Yahweh's kingdom, where, as the family of God, has an ancestral family center in the universe. There exists also a great floating spear, which may be almost symbolic to an asteroid going around al Kion in the Pleiades, which is almost as though made out of carbon diamonds. It is so clear that it radiates with beautiful color. It is shimmering with light because of the very deity of Yahweh shining out of it which makes it sparkle with all colors. It is the most beautiful color of a mansion in the universe, and both Enoch and Paul saw it. This is where we get the words, out of ivory palaces, or out of the crystal palaces, and they talk about the patterns of it, who they are, I don't know this is so high in this tremendous castle that there are clouds of radiant vapor effulgent glory between the roof and the floor and virtually all had had to ascend or even approach this floating throne surrounded with glory where christ was reviewing as the eternal yahweh messengers of his household from all over the universe this particular plane of course was the same plane in which they were coming and going, where they traveled in ships. If you don't need bodies, I don't know why you need ships. So therefore, this would be a third plane, but they were perfectly capable of going from one spot to another, and moving from one place to another, and they were coming into the center from all over the universe. And this is before Star Trek. This is before the LSD craze hit California. I I don't know what to say about this. There is no evidence that Paul saw any of these things. And I do not know from where Swift has gotten any of this concerning Paul, unless he just made it up. All we have from Paul that is remotely similar to any of this is a very short description of a vision. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul was not even sure of whether what he saw was real or a vision. And not only that, but Paul was actually speaking of another man, not of himself, and he said that this other man was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words. That's all it says. So Swift seems to have invented this entire story about Paul. Moreover, the Enoch, which Swift speaks of here, does not seem to be the Enoch known to us from Hebrew or Aramaic sources, but rather seems to be the pseudepigraphal secrets of Enoch, which only survives in Slavonic manuscripts that date to no earlier than the 14th century AD. So they are only about 700 years old. There are, however, some older Coptic fragments of a very small part of the work, which have been found recently and are believed to be from an early copy of a short version of The Secrets of Enoch, which is known as To Enoch. However, even with these, the earliest known copy of the book may have dated anywhere from the 5th to the 14th centuries A.D., and their existence hardly proves that it was legitimate. So we sure as hell shouldn't make scripture out of it. That is nuts. Furthermore, Enoch does not contain any of the graphic detail which Swift provides here. He just made it all up. Taking a few astronomical references from the Old Testament and extrapolating them into a Christian identity Star Wars that is a product of his own imagination. Fascinating? Of course. True Bible scholarship? No way. It belongs on TV. Swift rather consistently taught that Negroes had been brought here from some other planet by Satan. The following is from a Bible study question and answer session from May 11th 1966 and the question will you please explain where the Negro came from do we have any evidence that they were pre-Adamic and swift answers this is an interesting question and we do have evidence that they are pre-Adamic in the book of Seth and as Enoch wrote, he referred to them as the dark-skinned people, having come in with Lucifer in the days of this rebellion on the part of Lucifer. In this instance, continuing with Swift, in this instance, Lucifer rebelled and went out into the universe in that area which he controlled and got axemen and swordsmen. These were Negroes who came out of one part of the Milky Way. Lucifer, you see, controlled a quarter of the universe. I thought it was a third. That's okay. Under Yahweh, and had been a good cooperating angel. Okay, I don't know where he got that from. I overlooked that when I prepared this. I'm sorry. And had been a good cooperating angel until this rebellion rose up in him. So these were... Negroes he gathered up out of the Milky Way and he talked to battle, and they were on his ships in the first recorded battle of this ancient war. Of course Michael was given command of the hosts of the Most High. These chariots under his command were out of God's universe, and there was of course lots of room for this battle because of the immensity of hundreds and thousands of trillions of solar systems and stars throughout space. Now, here Swift goes off on an even greater tangent, which opens up several other cans of worms. But we will discuss what we see in this text, which we have chosen to address. He had actually repeated things very similar to this in several of his Bible studies and sermons. For instance, in the sermon, Thou Art a Holy People. A sermon from May twenty-fifth, 1965. Swift said, In the course of the ages, the earth went through chaos, and through wars, and troubles, and bloodshed. From the Asiatic kingdoms to the Isles of the Sea, the mongrelization program continued. This was the time of the Negroes coming to earth. They came on the ships of Lucifer, and they were the axemen and the swordsmen from a fallen society, and a fallen generation. The coming of the negro and the sowing of the negro into as many as possible of the children on earth has brought the changes among the people on the face on the faces of the earth today. The created people had recognized Lucifer as son of the morning, prior to his fall, he had proclaimed that he was deity, now above all. But he promoted religions that from their very beginning were idolatry and paganism and voodoos. The fallen angel and consort of Lucifer established voodooism over the Africans and over the Negroes of the sea. I, I never really saw Negroes in the, sea, in the sea until they came over on slave ships anywhere in history but that's okay. First I want to address Wesley Swift's idea of created peoples because the Bible only tells us that Yahweh created one people and that was the Adamic race all of the white nations that ultimately descended from Noah. And it can be established historically with real citations and real scripture that all of the nations of Genesis 10 were indeed white. So I don't know what other created peoples Swift is talking about because he's not talking about any of these Genesis 10 nations. As far as the Negroes are concerned, There is no doubt they are the enemies of our God. In fact, there's a scripture in Isaiah which helps us to prove that contention. There's no doubt. But, did Satan bring them here on ships from outer space? Ella Rose Mass says of these books which Swift cites that Dr. Swift had in his library, the translation by Dr. Budge. Now, this is no special book. You could buy it on Amazon.com tonight. The translation by Dr. Budge, meaning Wallace Budge, of the books of what is known as the Cave of Treasures. The British Museum has some of the fragments of these old books. In fact, that's what Wallace Budge used to translate the Cave of Treasures. These included the writings of Adam, the Book of Seth, and the Book of the Bee, as well as many records and scrolls telling the things Yahweh had told Adam and Seth. I am familiar. This is Ella Rose Mass. She was a dear friend of the Swifts for, for most of her life from what i understand i am familiar with all these books and i read them back around 98 or 99 i'm sorry i'm i'm speaking for myself now i am fam- i am familiar with all of these books my notes are confusing and i read them back around 1998 or 99 early in my christian identity studies but i never bothered to obtain my own copies I borrowed them from a friend, Ralph Daigle, in Michigan, and read them and handed them back to Ralph. While it is unclear exactly what Swift meant by the book he refers to as the Towers of Enoch, which seems to refer to either the secrets of Enoch or the part of the Cave of Treasures which relates to Enoch, he certainly refers to the Cave of Treasures, where he mentions the Book of Seth. There's no separate Book of Seth. There are writings attributed to Seth in the Cave of Treasures. The Cave of Treasures, there are other books attributed to Seth in Gnostic documents that are well-known, but that Sethite literature is different literature than I'm sorry than Wesley Swift is citing here. Here, Swift is certainly citing the Seth writings found in the Cave of Treasures. The Cave of Treasures was one of those many early pseudo-Christian works, which were written anonymously, and they were originally attributed to the famous Christian writer. Ephraim the Syrian. We presented quite a few weeks ago quotations from Ephraim the Syrian here in our presentations. I forget exactly which ones it were. It it was, but we learned from historical sources that many works from the third through the sixth Centuries were written by later hands and attributed to Ephraim the Syrian. We did it when we um discredited the rapture theory. It was in part four of our presentation of the first epistle to the Thessalonians. Now I remember the Cave of Treasures is one of those early Christian writings which was written by later hands and attributed to Ephraim the Syrian. However, it is esteemed to date to no earlier than the sixth century AD and perhaps was written even later than that. This Book of the Bee and Cave of Treasures, two different works, were evidently written as Christian Apologies by a sect known as the Jacobites, which were a monophysite sect in Syria. Wallace Budge did not discover these books, but rather he only translated them from texts which were stored in the British Museum. The Cave of Treasures has sections which are said to be identical with parts of another spurious work which exists from Ethiopic and is known as the conflict of Adam and Eve. These late books should not be taken seriously by Bible scholars. There are many statements in these books which are not only patently ridiculous, but which are found to be directly contrary to scripture. Moreover, Swift seems to be confounding elements of the story from the Cave of Treasures, with notes, with the footnotes which Wallace Budge supplied from another book that he translated, which is a 15th century Ethiopic book called The Mysteries of Heaven and Earth. I cannot begin to cover Swift's errors in quoting these works in a single evening. So, I will only provide a link to an online version of the book of the Cave of Treasures with my notes to this podcast. There is no way that these are legitimate Christian scriptures. And Swift is even confusing the content of those scriptures, of those writings, of those books, when he quotes from them. These writings, so far as we have seen, do not explicitly inform us that the imagined foot soldiers of Satan were Negroes, although they do mention the hosts of darkness and similar epithets that do not necessarily refer to physical characteristics. However, it is true, and even well documented, that early Ethiopian Christians portray Christ and other good biblical figures as light-skinned and Satan and other wicked figures as dark-skinned. That is documented. But that does not mean that we can write our own biblical narrative concerning the fall of Satan and the origin of Negroes from these late, non-biblical sources. Nope, we shouldn't do it. We should stay away from them they are not legitimate scripture. They might reflect things that 6th, 7th, 8th century Christians that some 6th century Christians believed, but they are not legitimate scripture. Aside from the origin of Negroes, Wesley Swift also taught a pending event with something that we can only call Planet X. We can't call it Nibiru because Zechariah Sitchin's first novel did not appear until 1976, six years after Wesley Swift was dead. Here's what Swift said in a sermon called Stars of God, which he gave in December of 1966, and perhaps Zechariah Sitchin was listening to Wesley Swift. He said, I tell you tonight, that cruising through space is a great measuring symbol. There is involved here an astronomical measure, which soon shall be declared from observatories all over the universe. They are going to tell you that a great bright star is coming in, that something tremendous is about to take place. You will hear them say, we don't know what's coming in, But the light is getting brighter and growing close. It looks as though it is on a collision course with the earth. But I tell you that this is the star of the Most High God. Not, my friends, like the sun or moon. But it is that star of illumination like none other than he himself. So I guess we'll have weeks or months notice of this on TV, right? It happens every other week. However, the return of Christ, of the return of Christ, Christians are told something quite different in Scripture, that he would come without warning as a thief in the night, and that this same Jesus, as it says in Acts chapter 1, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. It is therefore quite unlikely that there would be dramatic astronomical events announced on television in the weeks and months preceding the Second Advent. Since we don't know where Swift could have gotten this information, we will also have to assume that he himself fabricated it, because Zechariah Sitchin, he didn't print his first book yet. But Wesley Swift also endorsed the narrative presented by the Jew, Emmanuel Velikovsky, in his book, Worlds in Collision. Now, of course, Swift did recognize that Velikovsky was a Jew. Yes, he did. And he disparaged him for that. But he still accepted the narrative he presented. Here is what Swift said in a Bible study question and answer from June 24th, 1964, where Swift was making claims concerning an absence of the planet Venus in some of the supposed records of the Mayans and the ancient Egyptians, which we really can't even comment on without having the full record, which we won't have, right? He says this is the reason Why, when Velikovsky plagiarized the knowledge of modern astronomy and the worlds in collision, which is the book he wrote, this is how he knew that Venus came into our solar system. And he incorporated it into our solar system. This is a good, I guess he means Velikovsky. I don't know. It's not quite clear there. This is a good book to read, but remember all the time that the Jews stole it. For he is a true-blooded Jew, meaning Velikovsky, but Donnelly did the original work. Now, we are not going to make a longer citation because Swift was digressing on a multitude of topics. However, Emma Rose Mast also endorsed Velikovsky's book in some of her later notes. But the Donnelly, which Swift referred to here, is apparently Ignatius Donnelly, a 19th century populist politician and congressman from Minnesota. Donnelly wrote a book, which Velikovsky's own work seems to follow, I can't tell until I read them both, and I won't do that. Donnelly's book was called Ragnarok, The Age of Fire and Gravel. The book was published in 1883. Donnelly had a better-known book called Atlantis, The Antediluvian World. He was a New Age freak. He is remembered today as a pseudo-scientist and a pseudo-historian. And considering his opinion on Atlantis alone, we would certainly have to agree. With a precursory investigation, we did not even find any reference to Venus in connection with his writing, so we can only imagine that Swift was nevertheless following Velikovsky more closely than he was following Donnelly. In any event, we esteem that embracing these things represents a lack of good judgment on the part of Wesley Swift. Velikovsky was a Jew insurance salesman or something like that that wrote a book and and made a mint. And the book is just pure bullshit. Swift also referred to one of, and, and Donnelly was tied up with Madame Blavatsky, by the way, and that crowd. Swift also referred to one of the more One or more of the apparently Gnostic texts, which he called the Book of Seth. I'm not sure if if he was quoting the Gnostic texts or not, but he was certainly referring to the work that we had mentioned earlier in connection with the, the, the writings of Seth. I'm sorry, I've sort of lost my place. Swift referred to a Star Bible. He referred quite often to a Star Bible, by which he also, it's difficult to determine exactly what he means, but by which he also seems to be referring to some of the writings which were much later attributed to Enoch, to the spurious Secrets of Enoch, which only came down to us in Slavonic, and now, since their discovery in 2009, just a few, I think it's four, or fragments fragments of four of the middle chapters of The Secrets of Enoch, which is like 80-something short chapters that exist, that are now known to exist in Coptic. But worst of all, Wesley Swift accepted the Zohar and this is going to be our harshest criticism of them, even if the others weren't harsh enough, Wesley Swift accepted the Zohar as legitimate scripture. Now, perhaps he did this because, like so many other seemingly good-intentioned men, Swift thought that aspects of Freemasonry were good and had evolved apart from Jewry. Yes, he did. And in December 24th 1961 sermon titled the star of destiny swift said masonry of today has two pillars and two words and they have two significances and they got those words out of the city of on for that is where masonry was born masonry the master builders of yahweh's race which carried forth his wisdom Today there has been many changes made in masonry, but that is where it began. Swift assigned this ancient origin to Freemasonry, something that cannot be established historically or scripturally, and he gives it the same origins in history which has always been claimed for it by the Jews. However, Swift insists that its origin is independent of the Jews. Where we discussed the beginnings of Freemasonry in recent programs given here in in another context here at Christagenia, we showed that this same origin was ascribed to Masonry by the Jews or by those who admitted that Masonry had Jewish roots. However, Swift insists that its origin is independent of the Jews and that Jews only infiltrated and corrupted it. We have seen here with copious documentation that the origin of modern Freemasonry is Jewish from the beginning and that it was founded coincident with an unseemly interest among Christians in the Jewish Kabbalah in a june second nineteen sixty five bible study swift said there is nothing wrong with the junior order of the blue lodge in masonry but this fellow is not the one to lead it referring to a jew for instance you spoke of this fellow pike who wrote morals and dogma he went out and brought in hinduism and buddhism and tried to run it into the mystery schools One of the strong pillars of Israel, so Swift is talking about Freemasonry as one of the strong pillars of Israel, and by Israel, we expect that Swift is talking about the white race, and we would challenge that. And he says, and this is the same thing which is wrong with the church today, the same thing that is wrong with masonry. They let the pagans into masonry first, and now the church is mixing in paganism, the world, and everything else into the church. Now we can point out instances where Swift himself relied on ideas from Hinduism and other paganism to make some of his own points. In fact, in a quite ridiculous line, that Swift could only have gotten from the Zohar, he said in his Bible study of November 15th, 1967, and I quote, Well, Eve fell for this, meaning the seduction of Genesis 3, and Cain is the offspring. Then Eve came to Adam and introduced the serpent woman, Lilith, who happened to be Cali, the wife of Lucifer, And from Adam and Lilith came most of the people of Cali in India and the people of the Ganges. Wesley Swift said that. And I say it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. Swift spoke well of Freemasonry, thinking it had legitimate Christian beginnings, even though we have seen its evidence, the evidence of its Jewish origination, which predates the time of the Jacobins. I'm sure many of the Founding Fathers didn't understand that, but it's true nevertheless. It was masked, as I had described in detail. The Jewish roots of Freemasonry was masked to Christians because the Jews needed to enlist Christians into Freemasonry. Now, this confusion on the part of Swift may be forgiven as ignorance since the foundation of modern Freemasonry has been purposely obfuscated by those responsible for it. But the embrace of the Zohar cannot be forgiven so quickly. It is a tremendous mistake in our humble opinion. In an explanation of the results of race mixing, that is actually filled with Jewish reasoning and Jewish sophistry, in a June twenty fourth, 1964 Bible study session, Swift said, and I quote, So strict was God in this manner that he had said that no one could ever enter into the social, religious, economic, and political order of the kingdom unless they had been absorbed back by ten whole generations of our breeding. That's not what, the, that's not what God said. Not at all. And those families, up to the seventh generation, who had been contaminated by the attempt to inbreed back a person from this situation, could hold no office in any of that time which related to the sanctuary. This is what the Zohar was so strict about. This is why in the Old Testament that this was made clear in the Hebrew. The center of perception is mutated, in getting through consciousness, which does not have the wavelength of receiving it. For this is not the issue, for it does not carry the holy seed. So he uses the Jewish Zohar, a mystical book of the Talmud, as an example of upholding Yahweh's law. Even worse, he uses Jewish reasoning, which implies that the descendants of someone of mixed race could be rehabilitated after ten generations. A ninth-generation bastard is still a bastard. So every ninth generation, you got to wait for another ten generations. So you're never rehabilitated. Not ever. This is not possible. Could an eighth generation bastard really hold office in the sanctuary? Certainly not. But Swift intones that in reasoning that he obviously got from the Zohar. That's not the worst of it. It gets worse. From the sermon, Adamic Race Becomes Nations, given on July thirty-first, 1961. Swift said, this Adamic race, the white race, this was known in the ancient Zohar, and in all of the ancient patriarchal discussions, in the days of Adam, and of Seth, and of Enoch, and of Job. They knew that the Adamic race was the white race, and that's fine, but we do not need the book of the Jews to tell us the truth. Then he says from the sermon, Ark of the Covenant and its Reappearance, given on February 25th, 1962. He says, Thus, these of our race took that Ark of the Covenant, and they marched around Jericho, and there was more power in the box than out in front of it. The Zohar tells us that these Israelites marched around that city, that light and glory emanated from the box, and that is nice, but it's all Jewish conjecture. From the sermon, When Mortal Puts on Immortality, given on June thirtieth, 1960. And this one is real bad, Swift says, and it becomes essential for this premise that I laid for you which is outlined in the eighty second Psalm. Because the eighty and this is real bad, because the eighty second Psalm conforms to the ancient documents such as the Zohar and they understood this as we have related it to you this afternoon, that God stands in the congregations of the mighty and judges among the gods. There are two major faults here. First, we just heard Wesley Swift assert that the psalm conforms to the Zohar. Are you kidding me? That would be the position of the rabbis, that their word is superior to the word of God in scripture. The Zohar might, agree with the psalm, but the psalm, the psalms of David, sure as hell don't conform to the Zohar. The rabbis might make that argument. That must be where Swift got it from. That's the same standard argument we see in the Talmud, that the decisions of the rabbis are better than the law of God. That's a fatal lapse on Swift's part to make that statement whether we did it consciously or not, it's fatal. Second, as the psalm describes, as the 82nd psalm that Swift quotes, describes, when God stood in the congregation of the gods, which was a reference to the children of Israel, he was rebuking them for accepting the ungodly. That's the purpose for which God stood in the assembly of the gods to ask them how long will you accept the ungodly and that's exactly what Swift did every time he cited the Zohar as an authority he accepted the ungodly from the sermon Star of Destiny given December 24 1961 Swift says in fact And I was actually tricked by this at one point. Uh, I must, um, compare repeated it, and I believed it. But that's okay, i proved it wrong since. In fact, Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. No, it's not. Although correlated at the time of the other books. However, the fact remains that the records of Job are older than the writings of Moses. Well, no, they're not. The ancient Zohar, which had the compilations of all the revelations which had been given in all times to your race by archangels and by messengers and by Yahweh himself, and the Zohar refers to the things which Yahweh had told Job, and also to the antiquity of the book of Job, and it speaks of being long before the records of the early Pentateuch, and as existing long before any of the Pentateuch was written." And this is probably where Swift got this from, was from the Zohar. And what he should have done instead was read the book of Job, because it proves it wrong. And it, Swift continues, and it carries forward the story of measures and of wisdom. And for this purpose, the book of Job was one of the outstanding books. The book of the Zohar also had all the books of Enoch, and referred to the writings of Enoch many times. And that's the end of our quote, thankfully. Now we have already proven, and won't repeat the evidence here tonight, but we have already proven at Christigenia in our Bible commentaries, that the book of Job was not written until after the Israelite conquest of Canaan. Is it one of the earliest books in scripture? Yes. Is it older than the Pentateuch? No. We can es- establish that from its internal context, without a doubt. However, I also once took it for granted that Swift was correct in that manner. But he is wrong. And if the Zohar cites all of the spurious writings of Enoch, as well as the legitimate ones, that does not mean that the spurious books of Enoch are legitimate. Rather, it proves the opposite. It helps to establish that the Zohar is not nearly as old as Wesley Swift imagined. In a sermon from January 15, 1962, titled Bible and the Race of Destiny, Swift said, The Dead Sea Scrolls also contained the Books of Enoch, and also had within it the Battle of the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness whose foundations reached back into the history and the foundation of our race. Now, remember that because that's important because it shows Wesley Swift quotes stuff and makes up stories about it that he couldn't have even read. And he says, and in the records which were given in the ancient Zohar, which was the quotations of the philosophy and the quotations of every word out of the mouth of God. that just one of makes me puke. Which were quoted by the patriarchs and the people of your race. So with this record in mind, we are told what it was. And there are two great errors here. The first, of course, is the esteem for the Zohar, which only consists of perversions from the mouths of the devils that created it. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a scroll called the War Scroll. It's also called the Damascus Document, as it is called, I believe. Or maybe I'm confusing the Damascus Document for the Copper Scroll. That might be a possibility. But the War Scroll does tell us about a battle between the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness. Yes, it does. I've read it several times. But it's only a prayer which depicts a hoped-for battle between the Judean patriots of the Qumran sect, which wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Romans, who were called the Empire of the Kidim. That's all it was. It was not an inspired scroll of scripture that had anything to do with any two-seed-line understanding. None whatsoever. It was written by the Qumran sect, and it was a prayer that God would raise them up and take Jerusalem and defeat the Romans and throw them out of Judea. That's all it was. And in it, the Romans are described as the Empire of the Kidim. Why? Because when you look at Genesis 10, Kidim is one of those tribes of Japethi that dwells in the Isles of the Sea. That's why the Romans were called the Empire of the Kidim in the War Scroll. Because the Qumran sect didn't have any inkling that most of the Romans were actually anciently dispersed Israelites. It has nothing at all to do with the Adamic race fighting against the children of the devil. Evidently, Wesley Swift never even read it before he made his comments. I've read all of the Dead Sea Scrolls several times, and there is nothing outside of the War Scroll anything like what Wesley Swift describes here. Nothing. Nothing. Even by Jewish admission, the Jews admit this. This is right from Wikipedia. You don't have to go far to find this. By Jewish admission, the Zohar first appeared in Spain in the 13th century. It's not any ancient book of scripture. It's a book of Jew garble. It was first published by a Jew named Moses de Leon. The Kabbalah was developed after the publication of the Zohar. This De Leon character claimed that it was a 2nd century AD rabbi named Shimon Bar-Yoke, who hid in a cave for 13 years during the wars with Rome. And while studying the Torah, he was suddenly inspired by the prophet Elijah to write the Zohar. So, Swift is saying that this is the the words of these ancient Adamic patriarchs, even the Jews, with their best story, only attributed to the 2nd century A.D. But in reality, it never appeared, and it was probably written, in the 13th century A.D because we sure as hell can't take this kike's word for it that it came from the 2nd century. That's just bullshit. The entire story is pure bullshit, and none of this existed in any writings older than the 13th century, even if large portions are based on Scripture or some other earlier Jewish fables. There is nothing to the Zohar. It's Jew trash. Wesley Swift made a fatal mistake to accept the Zohar and the writings of the Jews. And identity Christians can only fix that mistake by acknowledging it. We can more than sufficiently prove our scriptural positions without these Jewish fables. Without all the spurious pseudepigraphal literature. And without the extraneous tales that have come out of Ethiopia. Is the Enoch literature fascinating? Of course it is. Is the Enoch literature scriptural? Let me say this. The form which the apostles read was scriptural. There's no doubt. If it wasn't scriptural, they wouldn't have quoted it. Show me that form. Please hand it to me. Let's check it out. Where are we going to get it from? Okay, we're going to get pieces of it from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes, we are. But we sure as hell can't guarantee that that stuff that came out of Ethiopia is it. It sure as hell ain't it. To use my most vulgar street language. There is one other error of Wesley Swift's, and it's a serious error, which I would like to discuss this evening. And that is in relation to the account of Barabbas. The figure from the gospel, whom the Jews wanted Pilate to set free, rather than Christ. We should all be well familiar with the Barabbas story. We read in Luke chapter 23, verse 18. But the whole multitude cried out, saying, kill him. In reference to Christ and release Barabbas for us. And Luke makes a parenthetical statement in Luke 23 19 speaking of Barabbas and it says whom was because of a certain sedition which happened in the city and a murder cast into prison. Now Matthew states merely that Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. And Mark states that he was bound with those rebels who, in the sedition, committed a murder. Corroborating Luke, 100%. And John chapter 18 merely says, Now Barabbas was a robber. Well, perhaps John didn't think that he could say he was a murderer because, well... There was a murder committed by rebels in a sedition, but John was probably confident calling him a robber. John called him a robber. Mark and Luke said he was a rebel who committed sedition and that those rebels committed a murder. Matthew says he was a notorious prisoner, meaning that he was at least a very bad man. In every manuscript of Scripture. We find these assessments of Barabbas, which were made by the Apostles, and there is absolutely no reason that we should doubt them. None whatsoever. This is what we said presenting our Luke commentary several years ago. This is um, just about four years ago. And we said in part, There was a fascinating story told by Wesley Swift in relation to this Barabbas, which must be addressed here, and of course I made this comment when I got to Luke chapter 23, verse 18. The story is found under the title of The Blue Tunic Army of Christ. It's one of Wesley Swift's sermons, and it is found in most of the archives of Swift's papers, including the one at Christagenia. I do not know if Swift originated the story or not. However, I do know this. There is absolutely not one shred of biblical or historical evidence in support of that story. In this story, Swift claims that Barabbas was the leader of an organized resistance movement which had the blessings of Christ and which served to protect him, sort of like the National Socialist brown shirts of the 1920s. There is no reason to doubt the Gospel accounts, and there is no indication that Barabbas was anything more than a common robber involved in sedition and murder none of which Christ had anything to do with. Wesley Swift pointed out many good things concerning Scripture, and for that reason, his work is worth preserving. However, his many innovations, and additionally, his tendency towards syncretism, allow for the propagation of a lot of error if his work is not treated with care. And of course, today, I have the same opinion except now that I've seen all those quotes from the Zohar it's even a little lower here's what Swift said in part about Barabbas I'm only going to uh, read two short paragraphs for the record here the Jews said his blood be upon us and our children after all that is where the blood belongs That is where the blood of all the righteous slain, of all the prophets of truth, from Abel to Zecharias, belonged, as Jesus had declared. And, of course, that part is fine. And so Pilate thought, Well now, I know one thing they will not do. Surely they will not ask for the death of this man, about whom I have heard so many rumors, and about whom my wife has told me so much, who has done so much good, who has raised the dead, who has healed the sick, who has proclaimed words of life, and who has not uttered a single word of instruction. And, of course, we can't know that Pilate actually knew those things. We can't know that at all. Surely, when I place this information before them, I know what they will do. So he came before them and said, There is a custom that at the Passover we release unto you a young man. A man, I'm sorry. Now, I happen to have a man named Barabbas. This man is a robber and a thief. Now, Swift says, which he might have been to Pilate, but to Israel he was a patriot. Now, the apostles all called him a robber and one of the people who led a sedition. So, if they're not Israel, I don't think they're pro-Roman. I don't think that way. I don't think the apostles really had a different opinion other than what the man really was. And Pilate never said that the man is a robber and a thief. The apostles said it. Swift continues and he says, Pilate said, I had this man in jail, and he has raided your caravans, and he has taken your goods and stolen from you. Whom would you have me release, Barabbas or Christ? Well, of course, Pilate never said any of that unless he said it according to the Zohar. I don't know, because I wouldn't read that trash. Swift continues, and he says, Of course, the mob of Jews said, Release Barabbas, release Barabbas. And he continues, and he says, Barabbas was an amazed patriot. Barabbas was the man who was released then, as Christ was led forth to crucifixion. But Barabbas was heartbroken to think that the Messiah was going to take his place. The strange situation was that Barabbas, upon being loosed, immediately went to the company, and the Essenes were worried lest the Jews would take after Barabbas again. The very moment that Christ was crucified, so Barabbas was hidden by the Essenes out in the caves, and a man named Rufus was given command of the Blue Tunic Army of Christ. And of course, all of that's bullshit. There is absolutely no historical validity for any of Swift's account concerning a Blue Tunic Army. Not in Josephus, not in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and certainly not in the scriptures. And to support his story, Swift took the words of the Apostles of Christ concerning Barabbas, that he was a thief and a robber, and he conveniently attributed them to Pontius Pilate. Here, Wesley Swift had created a blatant lie and a complete fairy tale, which is actually contrary to all Scripture. This is inexcusable. So far as I know, Wesley Swift was never taken into account for any of this. However, for me, because I have also followed the man's teachings and keep an archive of his work, I have a responsibility to bring all of these things to light. That has been my only purpose here tonight. This is only a beginning and other things which Swift said may be criticized. But this is a necessary first step and should hopefully be a lesson to identity Christians in general that God does not need our help. His truth stands on its own. As Paul of Tarsus said in chapter 3 of his Epistle to the Romans, Indeed, If the truth of Yahweh were increased by my lie for his honor, why then am I still judged as a wrongdoer? In other words, if Paul lied trying to augment Yahweh's truth, why would he still be a liar? Of course he would still be a liar. Of course it would still be a sin, because no lie is the truth. God does not need our lies. For his help. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening and good night.